Good morning, everyone. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, the psalmist said. But don't forget, he made yesterday, too. (laughs) When we hear that verse, we usually think it was a bright, sunny, you know, pleasant, even-tempered day, but we don't know what kind of day it was. might have been cold, might have been gloomy, might have been hot, but they are all days made by the Lord. And we should rejoice and be glad in them. But we rejoice and are glad that this is the Lord's Day. And they were able to come together and worship. I want to ask you a question to begin with. Other than before you got here this morning, when was the last time you thought about the coming of Jesus? When was the last time that you spent any time thinking that the Lord will return? It's a major teaching in Scripture, and yet it's not one that we talk about often. It's not one that we teach about often. It's not one that we speak about to one another often, and we're made to wonder why. In uh, planning the order of worship this morning, I noticed in our hymnals that we have approximately twice as many songs about heaven as we do about Jesus' second coming. And I wonder why that is, because the two go hand in hand, don't they? But we want to sing more about the one than we do about the other. And that raises a question, I think, about how convicted we are that Jesus will come again. It occurs to me that if the church is not careful, and this has happened in some circles, that if we're not careful that we will find ourselves in the same place as Reformed Judaism. Reformed Judaism, Judaism, as you know, is a messianic religion looking for a Messiah who has never come, as far as they believe. But in Reformed Judaism, they've given up looking. They've given up thinking about a Messiah. Did you know that in a lot of churches, people no longer think, talk, pray, sing, or speak about the return of Jesus? Could it be? Could it be that we would find ourselves in the same place And we would stop looking for our Messiah. Scripture does not allow us to do that. Are we looking for our Savior, our Messiah? We're supposed to be waiting for and hastening the day of his coming. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. We'll talk about that more later on. But are we? Are we waiting for, eagerly waiting for, anxiously waiting for the return of our Lord? By the way, we talk about it as the second coming, although that's an expression that never occurs in the Bible. It's not called the second coming. It's simply called his coming or his appearing or his presence. It's just his being here, but not the second coming. That's a terminology that we use. Nothing wrong with it. It's just not the way the Bible speaks of it. The early Christians talked about the return of Jesus a lot. Uh, For example, the apostle Paul, according to the book of Acts, was in Thessalonica apparently only a few weeks, at the most a few months. But during the period of time that he was in Thessalonica, he taught the Thessalonians about the return of Jesus. He taught them about it a good deal. He taught them some things about it he didn't tell us. When you read his letters to the Thessalonians, you'll find that in every chapter but one, he mentions the return of Jesus. And he tells them, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you. And then he talks about some things pertaining to the return of Jesus. The early Christians talked about that a lot. So I want us this morning to spend a few minutes together thinking about this subject. First of all, and above all, we should have no doubts 
that he is coming again. Jesus himself said so. You heard the reading from Mark 13. Mark 13 is a, a little bit of a difficult text to follow. So let me try to just uh, simplify it. I'm going to oversimplify it uh, a little bit to sort of help our, our uh, understanding together. The first 23 verses of Mark 13, I think, are about the destruction of Jerusalem. They are not about the return of Jesus. The disciples had asked Jesus, what will be the signs when all of these things will happen? But these things goes back to Mark 13, verses 1 to 2, where the disciples had commented on the great stones and the great buildings of the temple, and Jesus said they'll all be thrown down. And they said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of the end? And so he tells them some things to be looking for about that. Uh, and that happened in the year A.D. 70. But then you look at verse 24. He says, but in those days after that tribulation. All right, in those days after that tribulation. In other words, sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. He says that the sun would be darkened, the moon would not shine, the stars would fall from heaven. And we don't necessarily need to take that literally. It could be literal, but we don't need to take it that way. You'll find that kind of language frequently in the Old Testament prophets talking about the downfall of various cities and of various kingdoms. That kind of language is used to describe when God moves in, when God intervenes, when God acts decisively, particularly in judgment. And so you find that language in Mark 13. Here it describes the greatest moment that's going to occur in human history. Because he says, then they will see the Son of Man coming with clouds, with great glory and power. Then they'll see the Son of Man. We just sang it, every eye will behold him. There are parallels to Mark 13 in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. You'll see the same themes there stated a little bit differently, but the very same things. Jesus said he's coming again. Mark 13 is not the only time that he said it. You heard the reading of John 14, 1 to 3, when Jesus told those troubled disciples that he was going to go away. I mean, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, he said, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. That's how he comforted the disciples about his impending death. I'm going away, but I'm coming again. And I'm going to receive you to myself. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus told parables about his return. He told about a, a servant who, if he's faithful, when his master returns, will be rewarded. If he's unfaithful, he'll be punished. He told a parable about the talents, uh, about those sums of money that were left with serv uh, servants by a master who went away for a long period of time but then came back. Those parables both are based on the same theme of a master going away and coming again. And Jesus was telling the disciples, I'm going away, but I'm coming again. Yes, there'll be a delay, he says, but make no mistake, I'm coming again. In Luke 18, verse 8, at the end of the parable of the persistent widow of all places, 
a parable about prayer. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to always pray and not lose heart and told them about this widow who kept pleading her cause before an unjust judge. And the judge didn't care. He didn't want to hear about her or her problems. But she kept coming to him, and finally he said, if I don't give her what she wants, she's going to drive me crazy. That's a paraphrase. All right, she's going to drive me nuts if I don't give her what she wants. And finally he gives it to her. And Jesus says, if an unjust judge will do that, how much more will your Father in heaven do that? But then he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, note, not if, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will we have enough faith? Will, will he find a praying church? Will he find praying people? Will he find people who trust and believe in God? The reality of Jesus' coming is confirmed by other writers in the New Testament. I love that scene in Acts 1, verse 11, when Jesus, after the resurrection, ascends up into heaven, and the disciples are all standing around looking up into heaven and watching him go. And he's just gradually disappearing from sight. And, and they're all standing there. Uh, I like to think with their mouths open, people sometimes say, how do you know their mouths are open? I always tell them it's in the Greek. Uh, they're standing there looking up with their mouths open. They're just amazed seeing him go. And, and then an angel appears to them and he says, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This same Jesus whom you saw go into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go. He's coming back. In other words, what was the angel saying? You have business to do. Get on with it. He is coming again. He is coming again, the angel said. Paul mentions the return of Jesus in most of his letters, as we mentioned in almost every chapter of First and Second Thessalonians and in numerous other places. It's Paul who in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, prays that prayer, come Lord Jesus. He wrote it in the original Aramaic in which it would have been spoken in the Palestinian churches. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Prayed for the Lord to come, knowing and believing that it would happen. James 5 verse 7 says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Peter mentions the return of Jesus in both of his letters. 1 John 3 and verse 2 says these encouraging words. We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He is appearing again. He is coming again. John says, we need to trust him and not have shame when he comes. Revelation 1 and verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. If there's any truthfulness to scripture at all, and there is, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We need to live in light of that reality. But we don't know when. As certain as we are that he's coming, we are certain that we do not know when. Jesus said that too. He said concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Mark chapter 13, verse 32. That statement by Jesus created something of a problem in the early church because their opponents like to say, well, if Jesus was truly God's son, if he was God in the flesh, why didn't he know everything God knows? And I think the only response we can give to that is that it was a limitation he accepted as part of becoming human. There may have been other things that, we did, that he didn't know, as far as we know, but he says he didn't know that. The angels don't know that. Hidden deeply within the mind of God is the day and the hour. He already knows the moment when his son will return. We do not, and we will not know until it happens. Since even Jesus did not know, it's amazing, isn't it, that so many people have expended so much energy trying to predict the time of his coming. When you hear people do that, don't pass it off lightly because it's blasphemous. It's blasphemous for people to try to say something that Jesus said even he didn't know. And yet there's been a lot of energy expended by people trying to say that they can figure out the time of Jesus coming. Hal Lindsey used to predict not only the day, uh, not only the year, not only the month, not only the day, but even the time of day, headed down to the hour. Exactly what Jesus said, nobody knows. In the parable of the bridesmaids, at the end of it, Jesus said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13. Now Paul understood that and Paul taught it. After uh, talking about what will happen when Jesus returns in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says this at the beginning of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul says, I've told you that he's coming. You know that, but he says, you also know they were already aware that they could not know the time of his coming. His coming would be like a thief in the night. You ever had, a, had your house broken into? Uh, I have. It, it's not a pleasant thing. Uh, and it's, it's shocking. You hear people talk about it as feeling uh, violated in some way, and it really is. It's, it's very much a violation. And no matter how often you lock the doors, and, and no matter how frequently you set the alarms, and no matter how often you, you know, feed the dog or don't feed the dog so he'll be sure and bark, uh, Whatever you do, you know, when it happens, it comes as a surprise. It's always a shock. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says when Jesus comes, even though we know he's coming, it's going to happen suddenly, and it will happen so suddenly uh, that it will perhaps catch us unawares. Now, it's not surprising that no New Testament writer ever tries to predict the time of the coming of Jesus. They knew better. Somebody might ask, well, what about Revelation 22 and verse 20, where Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. Doesn't that talk about the timing of his coming? I don't really think so. I think the word soon there is used in the sense of sudden, unexpected, without further warning. The Greek word can mean quickly. It can mean suddenly. And I think the whole idea is, is that when he comes, he comes. In other words, it's not going to be a gradual thing. Uh, it's not going to be that Jesus, uh, that we will hear on the evening news that Jesus has appeared somewhere in Europe, all right, and that he may be here by tomorrow, you know. 
it, it's it's not it's not like the uh, the weathermen you know do tracking Santa Claus on on Christmas Eve. You know he's been spotted over Alaska. It's not going to be like that. When he comes, he says every eye will see him. We'll all know it, and it will happen, and it will be over as it happens. It will be over as it happens. That's the sense in which he is coming soon. There is nothing else that has to be done. There's nothing standing in the way of his coming. He can come at any time. And he will come without delay, ready or not. Some people ask sometimes, well, why has the delay been so long? Why has it been such a long time? I assure you that I do not know. That's God's timing, and it's his business. It's not ours. But don't let the delay fool you. In no way does the delay cast doubt on the reality of his coming. Peter dealt with that question or that problem in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He said this. He said that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Now, I suspect that Peter was not simply prophesying. I suspect some of those folks are already there, don't you? There were already people there saying that. Where is the promise of his coming? Some people misunderstood the teaching about Jesus' return. They thought uh, that he was going to come back right away. He, he was crucified. He was raised from the dead. He went back into heaven. Why can't he come back next week? And apparently there were people who thought that. And so when, when the delay went on, and Peter writes his letter, probably some 30 years later, people were beginning to say, some people were beginning to say, where is the promise of his coming? And here's their argument, that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed. He has come, but everything's still the same. So why should we keep believing that Jesus is going to come again? Peter says, well, they're forgetting some things. They're forgetting the devastation of the flood that wiped out almost all of life on earth. Peter says, by the same word that caused the flood... The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire and being kept until the day of, of uh, judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. You know, what I find interesting is this. We've got a lot of folks running around today telling us that we are in imminent danger of the end of life on earth as we know it because of climate change. And that may or may not be right. I don't know. But isn't it interesting that so many people are ready to believe in that imminent destruction, but they don't believe in the return of Jesus? Could be that the two things happen simultaneously. Could be that they could happen at the same time. Why do people want to believe in one kind of destruction, but not believe in the other? Isn't it interesting that that happens in, in our time? The other thing that Peter, uh, Peter's skeptics were forgetting was this. With the Lord, a day is as of what? A thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. You know what that means? That, that doesn't mean, don't start multiplying things by a thousand, okay? That, that's not the point. The point is God lives outside space and time. Time is irrelevant to him. It's really hard for us to grasp, isn't it? We are kind of prisoners of time, if you think about it. You know, we are born on a certain date, and we will die on a certain date unless the Lord comes first. 
Uh, we see ourselves growing older. We count the days and the years. When, when we're little, we anticipate them with great joy. You know, you're not three, you're three and a half. I've never heard anybody say I'm 70 and a half. Okay? We, we stop doing that somewhere along the line. That stops being so much fun. We are prisoners of time, but not God. God lives outside of time and space. It's irrelevant to him. And so to him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so what we see is the delay is nothing in God's mind. It's nothing in his, his realm of existence and his experience. But then Peter says, God isn't being slow about fulfilling his promise. He says this, he's being patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't quite know how that works. I don't know how it works that at some point God will decide to stop being patient and stop waiting for more people to come to repentance. I don't know how that works. I don't know what the signal will be in his, in his mind. I don't know what that brings that about. But for now, at least, Peter says he's being patient, waiting for people to repent. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Peter says. And then all the waiting will be over. So we don't know when he's coming. But we do know that he is, in fact, coming. Now, because we don't know when, it is imperative that we are ready always. Because we don't know when, it's imperative that we are ready always. Listen again to the words of Jesus. I know you heard these a few minutes ago, but Mark 13, beginning of verse 32 but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or at, when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Did you notice four times in that paragraph, Jesus says, stay awake. Stay awake. Because you don't know when he's coming, stay awake. Because we are those servants who are waiting for their master's return, we need to stay awake. The only thing you can do when you don't know the time of Jesus' coming is to be ready at all times. I mentioned earlier about folks who make false predictions about Jesus' return. Why do they do that? If you ask them, why are you trying to tell people when Jesus is going to return? They'll usually say something like this, so people will know to get ready. So people will know to get ready. No, that's not what Scripture says. It doesn't say, tell us the time so we'll know to be ready. It says, be ready at all times. And then the timing won't matter. The timing won't matter. That's what those parables in Matthew 24 and 25 teach. The parable about that servant who is either faithful or unfaithful. The master will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour to, that he does not know. 
And the parable of the ten bridesmaids who didn't, you know, five of them took oil for their lamps and five of them didn't. Five were ready for the long haul, but five weren't. And then when the bridegroom comes, they're not ready and they, they don't get in at the door of the wedding feast. And Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Be prepared, he says. Be ready for his coming. So what does it mean to be ready? Are you ready right now? We don't know when Jesus is going to come. Could be before the end of the day. Could be before the end of this service. Are you ready for him to come? What does it mean to be ready? Well, above all, it means that you have believed Jesus and what he says. And that you have believed who he is. That he is the Savior. You heard the reading this morning from John 14 to verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through him. And I know that the vast majority of people in the world either ignore that or scoff at it. But that doesn't change the truth. You're either ready through him or you're not. It means that you are so convinced of his reality and of his truthfulness that you've repented of your sins and you've confessed who you believe Jesus to be and you've been baptized into union with him so that when he appears, John says, you don't have to shrink from him in shame because you're already one with him. You're already on his team. You're already on his side. You're already one of his people. We want to be ready always. I love the conversion stories in the book of Acts. The first one in Acts 2, when Peter preaches the gospel in its fullness for the very first time. And that crowd of people hears him say, let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they were cut to the heart and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, they weren't ready and they knew they weren't and that's why they said, what do we do? Peter told them how to get ready. They started off the day of Pentecost not ready, but by the end of the day, more than 3,000 of them were ready. Same thing happens in Acts 16, beginning in verse 25, when Paul and Silas are in a jail in Philippi, and the earthquake happens. And the jailer is so despondent and so despairing of his life because his prisoners have escaped, he thinks, that he draws his sword and is about to kill himself. He's at the lowest point a person can be in his life. He thinks it's not worth living. He's not ready. And Paul called out to him and said, don't, don't do yourself any harm. We're, we're all here. And he called for lights and he rushed in and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's a pagan. He probably didn't really even know what saved meant. But he knew he wasn't ready. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. 
and all your household. And then later that night, he and his household were all baptized into Jesus. He started off the evening shift not ready to meet the Lord. The next morning, he was ready. It doesn't take a long time. It just takes determination. Paul gives this warning in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He says, when Jesus comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the question, are you ready, is this question. Have you obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus? Have you responded in faith to who Jesus is? And have you responded obediently by being united with him in baptism? Because just like that jailer, and just like those people on Pentecost, you can be ready before the day's over. So that you can know that you need not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And you can pray with Paul. Our Lord, come. But before you pray for him to come, you need to come to him. And that's what we're encouraging you to do right now. Let's stand and sing.